Hello and welcome to Shop Talk. On today's episode, we're going to introduce a new book. We're going to be reading the novel All American Boys by Brendan Kiley and Jason Reynolds. With me, as always, is my buddy and yours, Miss Dunn. How are we today, Miss Dunn? I'm doing all right, Mr. Doyle. I'm excited to get started in this book. And, and I think before we set out to discuss this book, I um, it's not going to be an easy book to read. Uh, while it might read kind of easily, the, the subject matter is really difficult and challenging. I think that we can navigate it together. But I was reading uh, this quote by Ibram X. Kendi. And Kendi does a lot of work around anti-racism. Um, and, and talking about the difference between being not a racist and being anti-racist. And the idea of anti-racism is when you stand up and speak out against racism when you see it anywhere, including in yourself. So one of the things that, that guides me as I'm reading books and things like this is Kendi's words. So I was just, if it's okay with you, Mr. Doyle, I was just going to read this quote from, from Kendi that we found together. I would love to hear it. Okay. So it says, To build a nation of equal opportunity for everyone, we need to dismantle this spurious legacy of our common upbringing. One of the best ways to do this is by reading books. Not books that reinforce old ideas about who we think we are, what we think America is, what we think racism is. Instead, we need to read books that are difficult or unorthodox, that don't go down easily. Books that force us to confront our self-serving beliefs and make us aware that I'm not racist is a slogan of denial. So there's a lot in there, Mr. Doyle. I think we'll be kind of talking about some of these things as themes as we read through the book. Um, but it looks like chapter one starts, it's called Rashad. Yeah, and the way that the, the way that these chapters are structured are essentially we jump back and forth between two different perspectives. I mentioned before that there are two authors, Brendan Kiley and Jason Reynolds. Brendan Kiley writes the perspective of a white character named Quinn, and Jason Reynolds writes the perspective of a black character named Rashad. In this chapter, we're going to see Rashad's perspective, and we we previewed the idea of anti-racism because we're going to see an event in this chapter that is disturbing, and it will just sort of open up all of these other uh, uncomfortable conversations that might come as a result of this book, but they're conversations that are incredibly important to have. So as you read about Rashad, he's going to be kind of a typical teenager. You will be able to relate to him, but something happens in this chapter that will uh, sort of inspire the rest of the book. So pay close attention and pay attention to those details. All right, and let's get into it. All American Boys, Friday, Rashad, you left, you left. You left, right, left, you left, you left, you left, right, left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I left, I left. I left, left, left that whack school and that even more whack ROTC drill team because it was Friday, which to me and basically every other person on earth meant it was time to party. Okay, maybe not everybody on earth. I'm sure there was a monk somewhere on a mountain who might have been thinking of something else. But I wasn't no monk, thank God. So for me and my friends, Friday was just another word for party. Monday, Tuesday, hump day, because who can resist the word hump? Thursday and party. Or as my brother Spoonie used to say, porty. And that's all I was thinking about as I crammed into a bathroom stall after school, partying and how I wasn't wanting to be in that stiff-ass uniform another minute. Thankfully, we didn't have to wear it every day, only on Fridays, which is what they called uniform days. Fridays. Of all days, whose dumb idea was that? Anyway, 
I've been wearing it since that morning. First bell is at 8.50 a.m. for drill practice, which is pretty much just a whole bunch of yelling and marching, which is always a great experience right before sitting in class with 30 other students and a teacher, either on the verge of tears or yelling for some other kid to head down to the principal's office. Fun. Let me make something clear. I didn't need ROTC. I didn't want to be part of no military club. Not like it was terrible or anything. As a matter of fact, it was actually just like any other class, except it was Chief Killebrew, funniest last name ever, teaching us all about life skills and being a good person and stuff like that. Better than math. And if it wasn't for the drill crap and the uniform, it really would have just been an easy A to offset some of my C's, even though I know my pop was trying to use it as some sort of gateway into the military. Not going to happen. I didn't need ROTC. But I did it, and I did it good, because my dad was pretty much making me. He's one of those dudes who feels like there's no better opportunity for a black boy in this country than to join the army. That's literally how he always put it, word for word. Let me tell you something, son, he'd say, leaning in the doorway of my room. I'd be lying on my bed, doodling in my sketch pad, doing everything physically possible to not just stop drawing and jam the pencils into my ears. He'd continue. Two weeks after I graduated from high school, my father came to me and said, the only people who are going to live in this house are people I'm making love to. I know, Dad, I'd moan, fully aware of what was coming next because he said it at least once a month. My father was the president of predictability, probably something he learned when he was in the army, or a police officer. Yep, the old man went from a green uniform, which he wore only for four years, though he talks about the military like he put in 20, to a blue uniform which he also only wore for four years before quitting the force to work in an office doing whatever people do in offices, get paid to be bored. And I knew what he was trying to tell me, to get out. Dad would drone. But I didn't know where I was going to go or what I was going to do. I didn't really do that well in school, and well, college just wasn't in the cards. And so you joined the army and it saved your life. I'd finish the story for him, trying to water down my voice take some of the sting out of it i'd like to pause here just because i'm noticing we know that this book is going to be at least some in part about police brutality and here we're learning that rashad's um father was a police officer he is was committed to his life in the army and now as a result of sort of his father's inspiration or forcing encouraging he rashad is in rotc and it's not really i mean you said the word forcing you're right. I mean, he's he's not really doing this out of his uh, own sort of passion for for the ROTC. He's doing it to keep his father off of his back. Uh, he even says so much. So it, it really, I think, sets up an interesting family dynamic there where we see Rashad trying to do everything he can to make his father happy. Well, and there's an age-old theme that we see all the time. You know, kids trying to live up to their parents' ideals or standards or expectations of them. Right. And just knowing where this story is going to go, knowing that there's going to be an incident of police brutality at, at the core of this story, there's going to be, I think, some additional tension there just given the father's history. So let's see how that plays out. Don't be smart, he'd say, pointing at me with the finger of fury. I never managed to take enough bite out of my tone. And trust me, I knew not to push it too far. I was just so tired of hearing the same thing over and over again. I'm not trying to be smart, I'd reply, calming him down. I'm just saying. Just saying what? You don't need discipline? You don't need to travel the world? Dad, I'd start, but he would shut me down and barrel on. 
You don't need a free education. You don't need to fight for your country, huh? Dad, I... Again, he'd cut me off. What is it, Rashad? You don't want to take after your father? Look around. His voice would lift way higher than necessary, and he'd fling his arms all over the place, temper tantrum style, pointing to the walls and windows and pretty much everything else in my room. I don't think I've done that bad. You and your brother have never had a care in the world. Then came his favorite saying. It wouldn't have surprised me if he had it tattooed across his chest. Listen to me, there's no better opportunity for a black boy in this country than to join the army. David. My mother's voice would come sweeping down the hallway with just enough spice in it to let the old man know that once again he'd pushed it too hard. Leave him alone, he stays out of trouble and he's a decent student. A decent student. I could have had straight A's if I wasn't always so busy sketching and doodling. Some call it a distraction. I call it dedication. But hey, decent was... decent. Then, my father's face would soften, made mush by my mother's tone. Look, can you just try it for me, Rashad? Just in high school, that's all I ask. I begged your brother to do it, and he needed it even more than you do. But he wouldn't listen, and now he's stuck working down at UPS. The way he said it was as if the lack of ROTC had a direct connection to why my older brother worked at UPS, as if only green and blue uniforms were okay, but brown ones meant failure. That's a good job. The boy takes care of himself, and him and his girlfriend have their own apartment. Plus, he's got all that volunteer work he does with the boys at the rec center. So Spoonie's fine, my mother argued. She pushed my father out of the way so she could spare the space in the doorway. So I could see her, and Rashad will be too. Dad shook his head and left the room. Well, this mom sort of sounds like a sweetheart, and I, I kind of like how they juxtapose the dad and his stern kind of army training um, and attitude with the mom, you know, when, when he says, then my father's face would soften made mush by my mother's tone. It sounds like she's sort of the heart of this family um, and, and loves her sons unconditionally. Right. Rashad seems to know who his ally is yeah. and, and knows how to sort of get her on his side when it's time to stand up to dad. Yes, you know? totally. That exact same conversation happened at least 20 times just like that. So when I got to high school, I just did it. I joined ROTC. Really? It's called JROTC, but nobody says the J. Stands for the Junior Reserve Officer Training Corps. I joined to get my dad off my back. To make him happy. Whatever. The point is, it was Friday. Uniform day. And right after the final bell, I ran to the bathroom with my duffel bag full of clothes to change out of everything green. Springfield Central High School bathrooms were never empty. There was always somebody in there at the mirror studying whatever facial hair was finally coming in, or sitting on a sink, checking their cell phone, skipping class. And after school, especially on a Friday, everybody popped in to make sure plans hadn't been made without them knowing. The bathroom was pretty much like an extension of the locker room, where even the students like me, the ones with no athletic skill whatsoever, could come and talk about the same thing athletes talked about, without all the ass slapping, which, to me, made it an even better place to be. What up, Shad? said English Jones, making a way too romantic face in the mirror. Model face to the left, model face to the right, brush hairline with hand, then come down the face and trace the space where hopefully one day a mustache and beard will be. That's how you do it. Mirror looking 101 and English was a master at it. English was pretty much a master at everything. He was the stereotypical green-eyed pretty boy with parents who spoiled him. So he had fly clothes and tattoos, Plus, his name, his real name, was English. 
so he pretty much had his pick when it came to the girls. It was like he was born to be the man. Like his parents planned it that way. But unstereotypically, he wasn't cocky about it like you would think, which of course made the ladies and the teachers and the principal and the parents and even the basketball coach even more crazy about him. That's right, English was also on the basketball team, the captain, the best player. Because why the hell wouldn't he be? What's goody? I said, giving him the chin-up nod while pushing my way into a stall. English and I have been close since we were kids, even though he was a year older than me. We were two pieces of a three-piece meal. Shannon Pushcart was the third wing, and the fries, the extra salty add-on, was Carlos Green. Carlos and Shannon were also in the bathroom, both leaning into the urinals, but looking back at me, which, by the way, is a weird thing to do. Don't ever look at someone else while you're taking a piss. Doesn't matter how well you know a person, it gets weird. You partying tonight at Jill's, soldier boy? Carlos asked, clowning me about the ROTC thing. Of course I'm going. What about you? Or you got basketball practice? I asked from inside the stall. Then I quickly followed with, oh, that's right, you and make the team. Again! Oh! Shannon gassed the joke up like he always did whenever it wasn't about him. A urinal flushed, and I knew it was him who flushed it because Shannon was the only person who ever flushed the urinals. I swear, that's never going to get old, Shannon said, laughter in his voice. I unbuttoned my jacket, a polyester Christmas tree covered in ornaments, and threw it over the stall door. Whatever, Carlos said. Yeah, whatever, I shot back. Don't y'all ever get tired of cracking the same jokes on each other every day? English's voice cut in. Don't you ever get tired of stroking your own face in the mirror, English? Carlos clapped back. Shannon spit laughed. Got him! Shut up, Shan! English snapped. And anyway, it's called stimulating the follicles, but y'all wouldn't know nothing about that. But E, seriously, it ain't working. From Shannon. Yeah, maybe your follicles just ain't that into you. Carlos came right behind him. By this point, I was doubled over in the stall laughing. But your girlfriend is... English said with impeccable timing, a snuff shot straight to the gut. Oh, of course from Shannon again. I don't even have no girlfriend, Carlos said. But that didn't matter. Cracking a joke about somebody's girlfriend, real or imaginary, is just a great comeback. At all times, it's just classic, like your mother jokes. Carlos sucked his teeth and shook the joke off like a champ and continued. That's why we gotta get to this party, so I can see what these ladies looking like. I'm with you on that one, English agreed. Smartest thing you've said all day. Off went the greenish-blue short-sleeved button-up shirt, which I also flung across the top of the door. Exactly. That's what I'm talking about, Shannon said, way too eager. See what these ladies looking like. He mimicked Carlos, the slightest bit of sarcasm still in his voice. If I picked up on it, I knew Carlos did too. I can't tell you what they'll be looking like, but I can tell you who they won't be looking at. You! Carlos razzed, still on get back from Shannon being slick and for laughing at my basketball crack. It had been at least three minutes since I made that joke, and he was still holding on to it. So petty. Shut up, Los. Everybody in here know I got more game than you, in every way, Shannon replied, totally serious. I kicked my foot up onto the toilet to untie my patent leather shoes. Just so you know, patent leather shoes should only be for men who are getting married. Nothing about patent leather says war. Argue about all this at the party. Just make sure y'all there. It's supposed to be live, English said. The sound of his footsteps moving toward the door. He and Shannon didn't have mandatory basketball practice like usual, but were still going to the gym to shoot around because, well, that's what they did every day. Those guys, especially English, basketball was life. English knocked on my stall twice. 
Look for me when you get there, dude. Bet. Later, Shad. From Shannon. Alright, Shad, hit me when you're on your way over, Carlos called as the door closed behind them. Carlos grew up right down the street from me, and like English, he was a senior, and therefore could drive, and therefore, again, was always my ride to the party. We smoked him with the jokes all the time because he'd tried out for the basketball team every single year and got cut every single year because he just wasn't very good. But if you asked him, he was the nicest dude to ever touch a ball. What he actually was good at, though, was art, which is also why he and I got along. He wasn't into drawing or painting, at least not in the traditional sense. He was into graffiti, a writer. His tag was lost. L-O-S with a T in parentheses. They were all over the school and our neighborhood and even the east side. Whenever we were heading to a party, for him, it was just another opportunity to speed around the city in his clunker, the back seat covered in paint markers and spray cans while he pointed out some of his masterpieces. Really, they were more like our masterpieces because I was the one who gave him some of the concepts for where and how to write his tag. For instance, on the side of the neighborhood bank, I told him he should bomb it in money green block letters. And on the door of the homeless shelter, I suggested gold regal letters. And on the backboard of the basketball hoop on the west side court, I suggested he write it in gang script. I never had the heart to do any actual tagging. I mentioned how my father was, right? Right. Plus, Carlos was a pro at it. He knew how to control the nozzle and minimize the drip to get clean tags, like, perfect. I never really told him, just because that wasn't something we did, but I loved them. All of them. I want to just stop right here and talk about how relatable Rashad sounds right now because the group of friends that he has sounds like a group of friends that I would have had when I was in high school. You know, there's a, a kid that gets picked on more than others. There's a kid who thinks that he's smoother with the ladies than the others. Like all of these different tropes um, are are real, you know, and, and so I, I understand this group of friends. I also like how Rashad is not trying to make it sound like he's a saint. Like he clearly tells us that he is out there helping Carlos uh, tag buildings and things like that. So he's, he's not a saint, but he's honest with us, which I think makes him a believable and a, and a reliable narrator, which I think will be important as we move forward. Great. When I walked out of that stall a few minutes later, I was a different person. It was like the reverse of Clark Kent running into the phone booth and becoming Superman. And instead, it was like Superman running into the booth and becoming a hopefully much cooler Clark Kent, even though I guess Superman might have been more comfortable in the cape and tight-ass red underwear than an ROTC uniform. But not me. No cape. And for the record, no tight-ass red underwear. I stepped out as regular Rashad Butler. T-shirt, sneakers that I had to perform a quick spit clean on, and jeans that I pulled up and sagged down just low enough to complete the look. My brother had given me this sweet leather jacket that he had outgrown, so I threw that on and bam, I was ready for whatever frat I had in store for me. Hopefully a little rub-a-dub on Tiffany Watts, the baddest girl in the 11th grade. At least to me. Carlos always said she looked like a cartoon character, like he could ever get her. A cartoon character? Really? Please. Cartoon character for my dreams. But before I could get to Jill's and get all up on Tiffany, I had a few stops to make. It was still early, and I had a couple of bucks so I could get me some chips and a pack of gum to kill the chip breath. Can't get girls with the dragon in your mouth. But other than that, I was flat broke, and it was never cool to party without cash, just because you always had to have something for the pizza spot, Mother's Pizza, which everyone went to either after the party was over or when the party got shut down early, which happened most of the time. 
Plus, you had to have money to chip in for whoever's gas tank was going to get you to and from the party, like, for instance, Carlos. So I caught a bus over to the west side to first pick up my snacks, then meet Spoonie at UPS just a few blocks from home so he could spot me at 20. The bus took forever, like it always did on Fridays. Forever. So at 4th Street, I got off and walked the last few blocks toward Jerry's Corner Mart, the day darkening all around me. Crazy how early it gets dark in the fall. Jerry's was pretty much the everything store. They sold it all. Incense, bomber jackets, beanies, snacks, beer, umbrellas, whatever else you needed. It was named after some dude named Jerry. Even though nobody named Jerry ever worked there, Jerry was probably some rich old white dude chilling on the east side, doing his thing with some young supermodel with fake everything on a mattress made of real money. Lotto ticket money. Cheap 40-ounce money. Bootleg DVD money. My money. I pushed the door to Jerry's open. It chimed like it always did, and the guy behind the counter looked up, like he always did, then stepped out from behind the counter, like he always did. What's up, man? I said. He nodded suspiciously, like he always did. There were only two other people in the store, a policeman and one other customer back by the bear fridge. The cop wasn't a security guard, the weaponless kind with the iron-on badges, the kind my dad tried to get my brother to apply for because they paid decent money. Nah, this cop was a cop, a real cop. That wasn't weird because Jerry's was pretty much known for being an easy come-up for a lot of people. You walk in, grab what you want, and walk out. No money spent. But I never stole nothing from anywhere. Again, too scared of what my pops would do to me. Knowing him, he'd probably send me right to military school or some kind of boot camp, like scared straight. He'd probably say something to my mother about how my problem is that I need more push-ups in my life. Luckily, I'm just not the stealing type. But I know a lot of people who are, and there was no better playground for a thief than Jerry's. I guess, though, after a string of hits, Jerry, whoever he is, finally decided to keep a cop on deck. I bopped down the magazine aisle toward the back of the store where the chips were, right by the drinks. Grab your chips, then turn around and hit the fridge for a soda or a beer. Boom. I looked at the chip selection. Like I said, Jerry's had everything. All the stank breath flavors. Barbecue, sour cream and onion, salt and vinegar, cheddar ranch, flaming hot. And I tried to figure out which would be the one that could be most easily beaten by a stick of gum. But plain wasn't an option. Seriously, who eats plain chips? While I was trying to figure this out, decisions, decisions. The other person in the store, a white lady who looked like she'd left her office job early, navy blue skirt, matching blazer, white sneakers, seemed to be dealing with the same dilemma, but with the bear right behind me. And I couldn't blame her. Jerry's had every kind of bear you could think of. At least it seemed that way to me. I didn't really pay her too much mind, though. I figured she was just somebody who probably had a long week at work and wanted to crack a cold brew to get her weekend started. My mother did that sometimes. She'd pop the cap off a beer and pour it in a wine glass so she could feel better about all the burping, as if there's a classy way to belch. This lady looked like the type who would do something like that. The type of lady who would treat herself to beer and nachos when her kids were gone to their fathers for the weekend. Now here's what happened. Pay attention. Okay, here we go. Now Rashad is telling us that it's time to pay attention. And I can tell you, you know, 18, 19 pages in, I already believe Rashad and what he's saying. I feel like he's likable. I can relate to him. And he's about to tell us uh, a story. Let's hear it. I finally picked out my bag of chips. Barbecue. Tasty and easily beatable by mint. That settled, I reached in my back pocket for my cell phone to let Spoonie know I was on my way. Damn. Left it in my ROTC uniform. 
So I set my duffel bag on the floor, squatted down to unzip it, the bag of chips tucked under my arm. At the moment, the duffel was open. The lady with the beer stepped backward, accidentally bumping me, knocking me off balance. Actually, she didn't really bump me. She tripped over me. I thrust one hand down to the floor to save myself from a nasty face plant, sending the bag of chips up the aisle, while she toppled over slowly, trying to catch her balance, but failing and falling half on me and half on the floor. The bottle she was holding shattered, sudsy bare, splattering everywhere. Oh my God, I'm so sorry, the lady cried. And before I could get myself together and tell her that it was okay and that I was okay and to make sure that she was okay, the guy who worked at Jerry's, who everyone knew wasn't Jerry, shouted, Hey! Making it clear that things were not okay. At first, I thought he was yelling at the lady on some you broke it, you bought it mess. And I was about to tell him to chill out. But then I realized he was looking at my open duffel and the bag of chips lying in the aisle. Hey, what are you doing? Me? I put my finger to my chest, confused. The cop perked up, slipping between me and the clerk to get a better look. But he wasn't looking at me at all. Not at first. He was looking at the lady, who was now on one knee, dusting off her hands. Ma'am, are you okay? The officer asked, concerned. Yes, yes, I'm... And before she could finish her sentence, the sentence that would have explained that she had tripped and fell over me, the cop cut her off. Did he do something to you? Again. Me? the hell was he talking about? I zipped my duffel bag halfway because I knew that I would have to leave the store very soon. No, no, I... The lady was now standing, clearly perplexed by the question. Yeah, he was trying to steal those chips, the clerk interrupted, shouting over the cop's shoulder. Then, fixing his scowl back on me, he said, isn't that right? Isn't that what you were trying to do? Isn't that what you put in your bag? What? What was going on? He was accusing me of things that hadn't even happened. Like, he couldn't have been talking to me. I wanted to turn around and check and make sure there wasn't some other kid standing behind me, stuffing chips in his backpack or something, but I knew there wasn't. I knew this asshole was talking to, at, about, me. It felt like some kind of bad prank. In my bag? Man, ain't nobody stealing nothing, I explained, getting back to my feet. My hands were already up, a reflex from seeing a cop coming toward me. I glanced over at the lady, who was now slowly moving away, toward the cookies and snack aisle. I was just trying to get my phone out of my bag when she fell over me, I tried to explain, but the policeman shut me down quick. Shut up, he barked, coming closer. Wait, wait, I... I said, shut up, he roared, now rushing me, grabbing me by the arm. Did you not hear me? You deaf or something? He led me toward the door while walkie-talkieing that he needed backup. Backup? For what? For who? No, you don't understand, I pleaded, unsure of what was happening. I have money right here. With my free hand, I reached into my pocket to grab the dollar I had designated to pay for those stupid chips. But before I could even get my fingers on the money, the cop had me knotted up in a submission hold, my arms twisted behind me, pain searing up to my shoulders. He shoved me through the door and slammed me to the ground, face first, hurt so bad the pain was a color, white, a crunching sound in my ear as bones in my nose cracked. After he slapped the cuffs on me, the metal cutting into my wrists, he yanked at my shirt and pants, searching me. I let out a wail, a sound that came from somewhere deep inside, one I had never made before, coming from a feeling I had never felt before. My initial reaction to the terrible pain was to move, not to try to escape or resist, but just move. It's like when you stub your toe. 
The first thing you do is throw yourself on the bed or jump around. It was that same reflex. I just needed to move to hopefully calm the pain. But moving wasn't a good idea because every time I flipped and flapped on the pavement, with every natural jerk, the cuffs seemed to tighten. And worse, I caught another blow. A fist in the kidney. A knee in the back. A forearm to the back of the neck. Oh, you want to resist? You want to resist? The cop kept saying, pounding me. He asked as if he expected me to answer, but I couldn't. And if I could have, I would have told him that I didn't want to resist. Plus, I was already in cuffs. I was already stuck. The people on the street watching, their faint murmurs of leave him alone, becoming white noise. They knew I didn't want to resist. I really, really didn't. I just wanted him to stop beating me. I just wanted to live. Each blow earthquaked my insides, crushing parts of me I had never seen, parts of me I never knew were there. Fucking thugs. Can't just do what you're told. Need to learn how to respect authority, and I'm going to teach you, he taunted, almost whispering in my ear. There was blood pooling in my mouth, tasted like metal. There were tears pooling in my eyes. I could see someone looking at me quickly fading into a watery blur. Everything was sideways, wrong. My ears were clogged, plugged by the pressure. All I could make out was the washed-out grunts of the man leaning over me, hurting me, telling me to stop fighting even though I wasn't fighting, and then the piercing sound of sirens pulling up. My brain exploded into a million thoughts and only one thought at the same time. Please don't kill me. Oof. Okay, so that that was intense and, and really hard to read, but I am having this thought now where we're one chapter into this book that we set out saying was going to be a challenge, and already I feel like... I have a new perspective on on a situation that I didn't know that much about. I see the news, I watch the news, I stay up to the minute as much as I can on on these kinds of issues, but to read a narrative explanation of what that felt like, uh, Jason Reynolds does a great job of, of describing that, and I already feel like I have a better understanding of a situation I didn't know about before. It's painful, it is violent, it is, it's a, a scary scene and he really i think captures uh, sort of like an animalistic attitude coming from the police officer that that is really it's really terrifying and the fact that rashad has this instinct to put his hands up when he sees the cops that just reminds me of the stories that i've heard about parents having to talk to their black teenage sons about what to do when they see the police as a white woman it is a conversation that i don't think i'm going to have to have with my white son and i and that um, I don't know, when he puts his hands up instinctually, uh, it reminded me of that. I agree. I agree. Also, as, as a parent, as a, a parent of white children, um, it's the sort of thing that we take for granted. And I think that that is going to take us to our... Think about Think about them. Think about them. So if you're a subscriber to Shop Talk, you know that we usually end each chapter or episode with some takeaways. Since what Mr. Doyle and I really want you to do uh, with this novel is to think about it, we're going to change our takeaways to think about them. And so we'll give you a couple things to think about uh, between chapters. So one thing that we wanted everybody to be thinking about as, uh, as they replay the different events from this chapter is Rashad's connection to the ROTC. What do you think that means for this character? 
Okay, and then for the next thing to think about, how about his family connection? We now know all the players in Rashad's family, mom, dad, brother. How do they interact with each other? What does that say about that family dynamic? And how do you relate to or not relate to some of those connections? And for our final think about them, the name of this novel is All American Boys, so there is something inherently masculine about it. And so our final, our final think about it is for you to think about what, what is it that makes a man a man? We see a couple different, a couple different forms of masculinity in this chapter. We get the perspective of a, of a teenage boy being as all American as, as it could be goofing off with his friends and really sharing a, a genuine voice. Then we see this pent up rage of this uh, police officer later in the novel. But what does this all mean when you take it together? What What is it to be an all American boy? What is it to be a man in America? Great, Mr. Joel. And I'm, I'm very interested in exploring that theme because I think we uh, struggle sometimes with the expectations we set for males and um, I'd love to get the kids talking about that. Right. So it's going to be a fascinating season. It's going to be a fascinating novel to pick apart. And I'm thrilled to be doing that with you, Miss Dunn. And I'm thrilled to be doing it with you listeners out there. So stay tuned for the next chapter. Bye. Bye.